trying to not just do things for women, but really educate the male population, both within an organization and a country, is really important if you're really going to affect change in the long term. Right. So this, there's a misalignment of interest in actually being good at being a manager. And therefore, most organizations don't actually train people on how to be managers of people. Right. That's a very naive approach to it, thinking you can learn everything about any industry in a year or even 10 years. Right? Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now, more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investment. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Abhilash Jaikumar. Abhilash is a co-founder and managing director of Trace Vista, a provider of financial services, research, and data analytics support for asset managers, investment banks, research firms, and corporates. He has worked in both the investment banking and private equity industries and has been involved in more than $20 billion of financing and M&A activity. Abhilash serves on the board of Beyond Capital Fund and the Association for Corporate Growth, ACG, in New York. Welcome, Avi. So great to have you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Eva and Ed, for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So let's dive in. I have known you for a very long time. You and I met when I was in college, and I interned for you at Merrill Lynch, and there's some great stories to be told there, but I Uh, I really just want to say that um, I've had the pleasure of watching your career and looking up to you in many ways. And in 2006, you founded a fantastic company and and a very innovative business model um, in your business called Trace Vista. And I would love if we could just start out by talking about those early days and what the inspiration was for you to move back to India and start your company. Uh, Sure, sure. Um, You know, so as you mentioned, I started in investment banking where we, you and I first met, then moved on to middle market private equity. And in 2005 and early 2006, I kind of had to think about, you know, what I wanted to do next, right? Did I want to continue on this path of being a private equity professional and I was on a partner track? Um, in a fund in Boston, and I had to make a decision. Is that Did I want to do middle market private equity? Did I want to do it in Boston? And if not that, then what? And around that time, it was, you know, deals were plentiful, but the leverage was quite high. And I think if you weren't drinking the Kool-Aid, you kind of saw what was coming down the pipe. And so I explored distressed debt as an opportunity. And as I explored that, I thought, okay, that can give me five to 10 years of something to do, but it's very cyclical. Then what? And so my horizon was always much longer. And at that time, you know, Thomas Friedman had put out the world is flat and high-speed internet was becoming prevalent. And this idea of uh, globalization was starting to take hold. McKinsey had just put out the concept of BRIC, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and that's going to be the future. So I wanted to be part of emerging markets. And I had some interviews set up by headhunters with some of the larger PE funds that were setting up shop in India at the time. 
it wasn't really me going back to India. I was born there, but I moved to the U.S. when I was one and a half. And I'd never been to Bombay. I'm from the South, so I don't speak any Hindi. I don't have any family in Bombay or Delhi, and I'd never been there in my life. So nobody could take me seriously about why I would actually want to come there just to pursue an opportunity. So if I wanted to get into India, the only way to do it was to be to start my own business. And the only thing I had any domain expertise was in financial services. And my co-founding partner was a colleague of mine from my Maryland days, but originally from India. So, you know, we were able to come together to basically outsource what it is we were doing otherwise in our banking and private equity jobs with the idea being if it's done at a desk, why can't that desk be anywhere in the world? And so part of, you know, my motivation is not just, okay, what is it for 20 years, but that's it's concept of a life, right? 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, that's the whole of your life. And I try to make my decisions with that always in mind. And I think it's why, you know, I'm associated with Beyond Capital and when we talk about purpose-driven leadership, I don't really separate the two because for me, I think about, okay, how does everything I do conform to the values that I have? And and the and the main thing I'm trying to do is contribute to society, whether it's by creating employment, creating a service for customers, and the bigger picture is what type of society you want to be a part of. And so emerging markets was part of that for me as well, right? Being able to get in on the ground floor and the nature of what my business is is employing younger professionals, often their first jobs, analysts and associate level professionals, and giving them a platform to develop and hopefully developing people who will be purpose-driven leaders in their own right in the future. So what was the first uh, type of services that you that you outsourced more specifically? Basically, it was financial research for smaller asset, manager, asset managers and investment banks. So building financial models, doing due diligence, writing investment memos, so what I'd call more complex of all the activities that are possibly outsourced, I wouldn't say necessarily the most valuable, but the most complex. And basically what it was I was doing when I was a private equity associate um, in Boston. And that lent itself to working with emerging managers, new funds, because they don't have an operating strategy in place yet. And so those type of firms have a use case for that. What we found you know, after we started the business is nobody beside a new firm would have a use case for that because anyone who's launched a firm and been in operation for a while, that's the first skill set that they're going to build out internally. And right. nobody's going to outsource this stuff to save a dollar. It's not worth the operational risk. Right? So the value proposition that we were trying to create never had anything to do with cost savings. It just had to do with a better way of doing business and addressing the HR challenges these firms face. Right? I went from a Merrill Lynch in investment banking to a 20-person private equity firm. And the you know, the HR differences between the two firms are night and day. And there's positives and negatives to a large firm and a small firm, right? And so we were trying to address, okay, a small firm doesn't have the luxury of recruiting in batches, training talent, replacing them every three years without disruption. Workflow is much more volatile. How are they going to address that? You try to repurpose junior people across the entire value chain, but everyone has an idea what their primary responsibility is and everything else is, uh, takes a backseat to that. So, those were the challenges we were trying to address. Right? It happens to be cheaper because we're in India, but that's not really the point. Fascinating. And how many employees do you have now? We're about 650 professionals uh, across three delivery centers in India, and we have a few sales offices outside of India. But for the most part, almost everybody sits in India. Most of our sales efforts are done through clients, word of mouth and referrals because nobody really believes in high-end outsourcing unless they hear from someone they know. <laughs> Yeah. And so I've been to your office a couple times in Mumbai, in Bombay, and your team loves working for you. There's clearly a secret sauce 
in your leadership. What would you say that is? I think when we started Trasista, I was 24 when I decided to start the company. And, and Sadiq was a year older than me. And so we weren't that far removed from being junior finance professionals when we started the business. So when we started it, we started it thinking about what are all the things that a large organization does poorly when it comes to harnessing the power of young talent, right? And at a large firm, there's so much more I would have been willing to do had they let me do it, right? And so keep, we always try to keep that in mind in our organization that we are going out and spending a ton of time and effort recruiting, training, developing wonderful young talent is try to create a form for them to actually be able to shine. Now, you know, the idea that team loves it, I think that's based on the individual, right? I can't really take credit for that because we have people who don't love the job and we have people who quit within the first month and, you know, and it has a lot more to do with the individual and what they are trying to accomplish, right? Whether it's at Trust Vista or whether it's an investment bank, you know, I meet people here in New York who come out of top Ivy League colleges and think they're going to go into a top investment bank and say, yeah, but after a year, you know, I'm going to switch over to hedge fund because there'll be nothing left to learn at the bank, right? That's a very naive approach to it, thinking you can learn everything about any industry in a year or even 10 years, right? Certainly there's, you know, the learning curve flattens and there's, you know, you know fewer projects that you'll extract to nugget from, but that's the long tail of knowledge, right? Most of any domain that you're going to apply on a daily basis, you can learn fairly quickly. The difference between a junior finance professional and senior professional isn't how well they run a DCF. It's that, you know, esoteric piece of knowledge that they can pull on in the moment they need it, right? And that's true of any domain, whether it's IT or marketing or HR, right? And so I think the team that you may have interacted with are the people who survived. I mean, a huge percent of our recruits, and we only hire about 1% of the applicants for the analyst associate positions. A lot of them don't survive the first three months, you know, um, between classroom training and just what we call our probation period. Right? It's almost like a boot camp, which is fine. We try to be honest and tell people, hey, this job isn't for everyone. Um, and But nobody wants to believe they're the, going to be the one that's not going to survive it. That's interesting about, you know, I think, so many companies don't give enough responsibility to young people. Um, I had a professor in college, a Russian professor named Vyacheslav Vasilyevich Ivanov, and he spoke 37 languages. Fun fact, true fact. And this guy was always getting requested to go to conferences and be a speaker because he was like a big authority on so many things. And I did some work for him one time. And one day we're sitting in his office and he said to me in the squeaky Russian voice, you know, Ed, I think that we ask too much of old people and not enough of young people. Mm-hmm. And that's what came into my mind as you were talking about like what young people really want is they want to, you know, they want to run. And a lot of times you got to give them that vulnerability, um, you know, give them that opportunity to fail and, I'm wondering specifically, how does that apply in your in your line of work? Um, what what types of things do you give them that they wouldn't get someplace else? Yeah, well, thinking about just old people who you associate that with being managers, and I think most professionals who have a management responsibility, that management responsibility is secondary to the domain responsibility. So, for example, in investment banking, a managing director manages directors, VPs, associates, and analysts. But his primary job is to generate revenue. And if he does that very well, there is literally no consequence for him being a horrible manager of people. Conversely, if he's a brilliant manager of people but doesn't make revenue, he's getting fired. Right. So this, there's a misalignment of interest in actually being good 
at being a manager. And therefore, most organizations don't actually train people on how to be managers of people. Right? And this is important because what happens for most managers, actually in you know, finance, they tend to be better when they're younger because when they're younger, they put more effort into being good at it. They actually invest in their junior talent, train them, have conversations about the why and the what. But that guy's going to leave in two to three years. And for some reason, most managers are shocked when it happens the first time. Oh, my guy left. Next time it won't happen. And it happens again. And each successive time, that manager puts in a little bit less effort, right? Because he says, that guy's going to leave. And at some point, he puts in the bare minimum, right? Now, a really good manager, if you have a very, very long view towards it, you will understand that everyone will act in their self-interest, including your junior employee, right? If they leave in two to three years and go and do something amazing, well, that's a win for the manager if they can think about it. Now, if they're only worried about who's going to do the work tomorrow, they can't think of it that way, right? And so in our organization, you know, we have analysts, associates, AVPs, VPs, SVPs, directors, and all that. But, you know, a good percent of our associates don't make the AVP level with us because that's kind of where the fork in the road happens at our organization. Typically in finance, you move up because you generate revenue. With us, you move up not only because you're technically sound, but you have to be predisposed to managing people, recruiting, training, developing talent. And if you know that is your job and that's what we're compensating you on and that's what we're evaluating on, you approach it necessarily very differently. And I tell this to managers quite often, you know, the job of a manager isn't always to avoid screw ups. Sometimes it's your job to clean up the mess. And it might seem more painful to do that at times, but that's the only way that your team is going to know how to not make the mess next time. Right. But as a manager, you have to have the confidence then in your own ability to clean it up. Right? If you lack that confidence, then you're just going to get involved to make sure the screw-up doesn't happen. Absolutely. This is fascinating. Yeah. And what is, what is the life of your employee look like when you're hiring them out of college? Where are they coming from? Are they coming from more rural parts of India or mostly cities? Um, so we recruit from colleges all over India. So most of the top colleges tend to be in, you know, metro areas, but the students themselves may have come to those metro areas from smaller towns, right? So our guys are from all over, from very rural areas. So they know that they are never going to go back there, right? It's not like I will go work in Bombay or Bangalore for a while, then I'm going to go back home because going back home is not a place where, you know, a finance industry might exist, right? And so to the extent that we recruit at a college in Bombay or in Delhi or in Bangalore, it might be the case that half the people that are there are not from that city to begin with. And just like young people anywhere in the world, talent, at, especially at the early part of their career, is going to be motivated by opportunity, not based on, you know, how is my commute or, you know, I have to go back to the city where my family is or work-life balance, right? And I think this is important to understand. And I think, you know, a lot of people give millennials a bad rap. There's a connotation when people say millennials. And I, I don't think that's often very fair because individuals are individuals. And I think in every generation, you have individuals that have a long-term view for themselves and the success they want to achieve in their career. And the secret to achieving that success is not a secret. It's the same for every generation. It's rolling up your sleeves and working harder than the next guy. That's the competitive advantage anyone can bring. When, when I went to a large public high school, we had 750 kids graduating my class. It didn't take a lot to be a valedictorian comparatively, right? And then when I went to university, it was a you know, much uh, better academic institution than my high school, um, and it was more competitive. But 
you know, to be honest, I, I was an undergraduate business student and business is not nearly as rigorous as, you know, studying economics or physics or anything of that nature. And so quite honestly, I didn't have to put in a lot of effort to graduate with honors. Right? But then when I graduated and went into the real world, I went into tech banking in 01, right? With that bubble is bursting, the world is falling apart and I'm seeing layoffs every other month. And I realized, look, everyone around me is really, really smart. Right? Being smart is not enough in this world. The only differentiating factor is, you know, am I willing to work harder than the next guy? That is in my control, right? And I will not be at work. If I still get laid off in that situation, then so be it. Then I know I did everything I could and I can live with that result, right? But I won't be a victim to external circumstances. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I always see the sort of success triangle as a combination of talent, opportunity, and effort. And of course, the talent is sort of what you're born with to the to a large extent, and the opportunity also, typically you don't have much to say about what opportunities you're given when you're young. So effort does make the biggest difference from where you're at, for sure. Yeah, I have a little formula that I put up in training batches sometimes that says success equals what you know times effort. Right? You can be the smartest guy in the room, but if you don't put in the effort, it means nothing. And conversely, you can be the hardest working guy, but if you don't actually lay the base of knowledge, it, your effort is not going to get you anything. Yeah. You also have a lot of women working at Trace Vista. I think every team I've worked with has had at least one or two, maybe even three females on it. How have you actively recruited? Is it, or is it just kind of the way that, that you know, there's a 50-50 split from uh, schools and from universities in India? Has that been a focus of yours at, at the company? Yeah. So, you know, the ratio isn't as high as we'd like it. And I, and I know we're higher than most finance firms and most firms in India, but it is certainly because of cognizant effort, right? From the very beginning, we always wanted an equal split. There's, you know, there's challenges for women, I think, in in a workplace environment anywhere in the world. And I think there's some unique challenges in a place like India that has a lot of systemic um, sexism built into the culture. Um, You know, the expectation of women to be the caregivers for the entire family while trying to work, expectations that a woman will relocate for her husband's job, but not vice versa. And even from parents, right? A lot of folks in India live with their families and joint families. It's quite normal, you know, after graduating, we're still living at home. And even parents are more biased towards against their daughters working late and on weekends versus letting their sons do the same thing, right? So we realize that these challenges are presented to the women in our organizations. And we realize we have to be the opposite of that, right? It's not enough to say, hey, what happens in your personal life is your personal life. We'll try to do it here. If we want this to succeed, we have to be an offsetting force for that. And it was interesting. I was in Berlin at the end of February for a conference uh, right before Europe shut down uh, because of the COVID-19 situation. And the following Monday was International Women's Day. And my co-founding partner, I, and our director was discussing over dinner you know, what are the things we can do to make it a more inclusive work environment? And obviously flexible working, work from home is, is a, you know, an easy one that you can try to put in place. But the challenge for us to do that was, is unless everyone avails of it, there still becomes a social stigma of women are the only ones doing it. So we're discussing how do you make everyone do it, right? If it's possible, if women can do it, why can't we men do we say mandatorily, sir, you have to spend this many days at home. Everyone has to do it, right? So it becomes socially acceptable. Now, I think with this situation that's going on in the world right now, right at the outset, I immediately thought, you know, this is going to be actually perhaps a good thing 
for women longer term because it's going to show that working from home is possible. And I think in the short term, it's been a challenge because especially in a place like India, there's a lot more pressure on the women. Now kids are at home, right? Their homeschooling has to happen. The help that you normally have isn't there. Right? In a lot of families, the default is for whatever reason, without speaking about it, somehow it becomes a woman's job to do all of that. And I think we as an organization are also, we have a women in Trust Vista you know, committee within the organization where we try to spend a lot of time educating the men about the unconscious biases that happen, the microaggressions that occur that maybe they're not even aware of that they participate in. And I think trying to not just do things for women, but really educate the male population, both within an organization and a country is really important if you're really going to affect change in the long term. That must just be a constant effort. Like really, you know, it's no less effort than what women actually do in reality on a day to day basis. So I can't really take credit for doing anything meaningful because half the world's population has to do a lot more than that every day. You bring up some great points. And I, I think that it it shows at least just one angle of how Tracist uh, goes above and beyond for its, the company's employees, but also its community. Um, I did want to just touch on the the hashtag that you created, um, split the list during the lockdown period in India, encouraging both members, male and female of households to take on um, household duties. And strategically, that was probably very good for your female employees. How did that play out? Yeah. So, you know, through my alumni network, um, uh, you know, I went to Georgetown. We have a chat group for the alumni in India and one of the women working with a consulting firm, you know, she shared that idea with the group and, you know, I shared it with my HR team. And so we have a entire department just focused on employee engagement and obviously in a work from home situation, there's a lot of challenges with that. So, you know, we're constantly thinking about the challenges that our employees are going to face and how do we help them address that? And so, again, it goes to the point of educating the male side of uh, the community as well. Right? To, you know, they're working from home. What can they do to help their wives and mothers and sisters in, in that situation? And again, spread that message. And, you know, talking about community, talking about businesses in business school 20 years ago, you were taught that management's job is to look out for shareholder interest, right? That was explicit in big, bold letters. That's the job description, right? Increased shareholder value. And I think over time, and even more so today than ever before, that's changed to say stakeholder rather than shareholder. And stakeholders, I think people are still getting their head around what that definition means. And to us, what that definition means is our employees, our customers, and our community. And you know, we're a private business co-founded uh, by City Mishra and I, myself. And you know, we don't really think of shareholders as stakeholders. Right? We don't really wear our shareholder hat. We think of ourselves as employees of the business. And so our job as managers is to look after our stakeholders, which are primarily our employees, our customers and our community. And even when we were less than 10 people, we would do community service activities. We'd go to an orphanage inside of a slum and you know, buy supplies and play with the children, have them meet different people and engage them. And as we got larger and we can put everyone into an orphanage, we could do tree plantations and, you know, different activities and drives just to create engagement uh, level. So it's always been part of our ethos is to serve the community. You know, I'm really intrigued about the way you 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 handle that engagement sort of contrasted against performance. So one of the things that in my line of work, I'm in HR tech, and uh, we, we see 
know, engagement being sometimes thought of as uh, really something different than like, performance management. And I think it is, I think it is different, but I'm wondering how do you sort of reconcile on one hand, hey, I want, I want to have my employees engaged. I want them to have all these sort of services and programs and so on. And then on the other hand, you want the top performance. So how do you manage those two uh, sort of two sides of that coin? You know, we have a lot of staff departments. Probably we have a lot more staff to revenue generating employees ratio than most organizations would. You know, we have a, our HR is actually split into multiple separate HR departments. We have a recruiting team separate from a training team, separate from an engagement team. Um, we have, you know, uh, departments supporting specific layers of an organization. So we have a client development team that supports the vice presidents of the organization to focus on how they can more effectively manage their client relationships. So creating operating leverage for them because they also have to manage the teams underneath them. Right. Similarly, creating you know, a lot of reporting at a central level so managers can get reports to see you know, how the performance is happening. But we expect the line managers, right, not departments, to ensure performance. Right? An associate checks in analyst work. An AVP checks the associate and analyst from a team-building perspective. Right? Reviews happen after every project. Right? There's team reviews that they can give at that point in time that collate up to semi-annual performance reviews that are 360 review process. We had 360 reviews, again, from the very first time we had reviews. We do them every six months, and it's we built in our own software inside of our ERP system just to manage this. Right? So, And people understand that it works both ways. If an AVP is going to get slandered by their analysts, that's going to have consequences. Right? They're actually incented in a line to perform as a manager. Right? And then we as a firm will give that manager support on how to be a good manager. And we've been a small firm and now we're a larger firm, but for each individual, right, there's a specific individual that matters as a manager, right? So you can say we have 650 people. I don't manage 650 people. Right? I think the most brilliant manager in the world might be able to manage seven people, right? It's on average, probably three to seven for any one person. And so that's how you build an organization with a pyramid structure, but you have to be responsible for the people that, you're responsible for. And there has to be accountability for that. Right? And I think it starts at the top, not on the bottom. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about the company's CSR. I know it goes beyond just donations. Uh, can you tell us about how you've been able to use time to also support the organizations that you are passionate about, the firm? Yeah, so there's a couple things that we do when we think about CSR at the most basic level. It's cash donations to organizations that are affecting change. Certainly, in a time like this, we're you know donating to organizations that are helping migrant workers and you know delivering food to people who need it. Uh, you know, there's a very strict lockdown happening in India, and a lot of the poor are very displaced by all of this. But apart from that, we also try to create activities for people to participate in. One of the Things that I find interesting, you know, going to a Jesuit university where, you know, service men and women in service of others is part of the motto to a place like India where you have 1.3 billion people is a lot of people feel that they can't make a change, right? What does it matter if I go into that orphanage for one day, right? What difference does it make? And this uh, apathy is quite prevalent. And obviously you have people who really care or passionate and doing things, but there's a whole bunch of people who don't. And that might be true of any society, 
but it's quite okay. I feel in India, a lot of people say, yeah, I don't really care. Right. I think at a minimum in New York, you can't say something like that out loud without, you know, people, you know, judging you quite harshly about it. But in India, a lot of people mean it sincerely. Like, tell me what difference can I make? Like, how is this changing anything? I pick up trash on the beach. It's filthy again by the next morning. How is that going to make any difference? Right. And, and this apathy is a problem because it's, if everyone believes it, then it is true. Right? But change has to happen one person at a time. So part of these activities we do are try to get people to change their mind. And we're not going to get everyone to change their attitude about it. But if I can change a few people, that's meaningful. And as we're a growing organization, the people who grow with us are amongst the most well-paid people in India. They're in the 1%, right? And there are leaders. And, and when we talk about promotion at higher levels, it's not just on performance. We actually have committees to evaluate promotion. And these are the things that we look at. Are you a good citizen, right? Are you the type of person that we want to empower to be a leader in this country? Are you the type of person that deserves to get paid, you know, very, very well? Because again, it's my and my co-founding partner's business. So we, we can make a decision based on this. Yeah, you're brilliant at your job, but you don't care about anyone by yourself. That's not going to fly in an organization and we can impact that, right? And the third way, how we try to engage people is, you know, Eva, is what you're talking about is how do we get people to use the skills that they have that we're training them with in a socially responsible way? So, you know, anybody can go plant trees, but what can our guys do that they're uniquely qualified to do and do it in a way that's going to have social impact? All right. So we're finance professionals. We do research, build models, do valuation, make budgets. And so we do, a, we have a lot of partnerships with impact investment organizations who then have us work directly with the social entrepreneurs who aren't going to have the budget or the finance skills to think about their business the way, you know, a larger company would, right? They don't have a CFO that's going to build them an Excel model with cash budgeting monthly for the next three years to think about where cash is coming or going, right? So in that way, we're letting our analysts and work, associates work directly with, you know, entrepreneurs who are then looking at them as advisors, not as junior professionals, right? And they're able to then see themselves in a different light and actually appreciate the skills they develop. You know, I think a lot of people take what they know for granted, right? Assuming you, you have some level of humility, right? You put your pants on with a long leg at a time. You don't think what you do is that, that special. But when you're in, around people who don't have your skill set, that's when you realize you've learned something and you know something, right? And then someone's appreciating the two minutes you can give them or the, the hours you might be able to help spending them. And then you enjoy it, right? And and, you know, I think most things have diminishing returns. Right? If you study economics, diminishing marginal utility. The one thing that I found is that giving is the one thing that doesn't have diminishing marginal utility. Right? And once we get people engaged and saying, use your skills, doing what you like doing. And by the way, as a social impact, right? At some point, people start switching that equation around, right? They start saying, hey, I want to do something that has social impact. And by the way, I'll do it with, based on what I can do, not the other way around. How heavily is the alignment with the corporate social responsibilities, sort of social impact or community, how, how uh, weighted is that in the performance review? Is it weighted like 10%, 20%? So it's more relevant for the senior most professionals when you're thinking about promoting people to managers. And so the performance reviews for senior people are entirely subjective, right? Because the, it's, and I say it's subjective, but it's, but in my view is, my subjective opinion is objective because I'm an expert in evaluating talent, right? If I say you're good, you're good. And if I say you're not, you're not, that's not subjective to me, right? I've been doing this long enough. I know what it, 
what matters. And the challenge with making something purely objective, saying, okay, we have 12 KPIs and here are the metrics. It's really smart, talented people start managing the KPIs, right? And it creates perverse incentives. So purposely, we just say, these are all the things that are important, but we're not giving weights to them, right? Because it's not 10% here, 10% there, right? You do brilliant on 11 out of 12 metrics and you do poorly on one, you're straight gone. Right? There's a quote I've been saying since we started this company, trying to get people to understand quality and it's 99% right is 100% wrong. You know, the engagement team, I think, has printed it on a poster and stuck it up in the training room. And the way I try mm-hmm. to make people understand this is, you know, do you like ice cream? Most people say, yes, we love ice cream. And I say, imagine you have a big pile of ice cream. Then I take my pinky and stick it in dog poo. And then I stick my pinky in that ice cream. Is it ice cream anymore? Right? And so this is how I think about quality. So it's not that I give away. If something matters, it matters. It doesn't matter how good everything else is. If that one thing isn't right, the whole thing isn't right. So when you talk about weight, if someone's not socially minded, it doesn't matter about anything else they do or have done. Right? They're not moving up. Got it. And I just want to say that Beyond Capital has been a, a recipient of the enthusiastic participation of your employees um, who want, who are giving their time to support our investment pipeline, a little bit of our lead gen, um, a little bit of our finance function. Um, and I've been able to see the, the true commitment um, from the firm and how it's as you just pointed out, it's extremely thought through. Um, and so I think, I think that that's a really great part of the business that, you know, may not be communicated to your typical clients or may, may not be as obvious to them. Well, quick question. Who, who are your, your clients? Um, like who do they tend to be and what geographies are they in? When we started the business, almost all of our clients were emerging markets, uh, asset managers and investment banks. And they ranged from, you know, one-man shops to the largest P firms and advisory firms. And initially emerging markets because there was a lack of talent in those markets. They were 2007, 8, they were booming, but there was nobody to hire locally. So we were a talent play. And over time, we grew post-financial crisis in Europe where the people were trying to avoid labor liabilities that come with employment. And the U.S. has been the last market we've grown in over the last six years. It's now our largest market. I would say 60% of our clients are private equity firms. The balance are family offices investing across asset classes, hedge funds, credit funds, real estate funds, advisory firms, um, and, you know, again, doing deal by deal stuff to trillions under management. So collectively, our clients manage over $10 trillion. I would say 90% of our clients are actually 20 or fewer professionals themselves, and a quarter of our clients are five or fewer. So it's very atypical for an outsourcing business in the sense that our clients are basically, it's a re, basically a retail business in the sense that the people who hire us are the ones paying us and working with us. So, you know, if you're not good on Monday, you're gone on Tuesday. So, Abi, the, um, the thing that's coming to my mind is you must have an incredible perspective on what's going on with all these, all these finance professionals in the midst of COVID-19, which we're now recording this in uh, early May. What is your take on the direction of the world economy? And then since we're your biggest market, maybe the American economy, you could throw that in there too. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. My perspective is you know, shaped by my experience. I started my career in tech banking as that bubble burst. I started this company nine months before Lehman Brothers collapsed. And so part of me is not phased at all by this. Right? These things happen out to this scale. This thing hasn't happened. 
on average, historically, every seven years, you have a downturn. So we've gone 11 years without it. So for most young finance professionals, this is their first time and they haven't experienced anything like this. And even for the people who were around for the last one, they might've been still too early in their career to emotionally understand the consequences of this and what it means for people with mortgages and families and debt. You know, it's, it's very different. So in the short term, I think it's going to be disruption, but every time you come back, right. And it takes a while for things to come back, but the bottom happens a lot sooner than people realize. But until it comes back to what it was pre-crisis level, people don't accept that you're trending in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And I think in these types of situations, you have three types of individuals and three types of firms. The first is those having existential crises, right? Who are really just panicking about, oh my God, what do I do? Right? And some firms will fold and, and you know, cease to exist. But those individuals in the firm, they will continue to do something. They will come back. They will go somewhere else. So to that extent, you know, your networks get distributed. And part of me being at Maryland at that time is a lot of people got laid off. A lot of people went elsewhere. It expanded my network quite significantly. Right. And there's a long-term benefit to that. Right. You mm-hmm. Pollinate more effectively. The second type of firm is going to be the one who's just focused on surviving. Right. And they will, but they know they have to make hard decisions for employees, cut costs, cut marketing, you know, drastic measures, everything to keep the lights on. And the third type of firm, which is ideally, or, you know, or individual where ideally you want to be is know that, okay, this is not the most ideal situation for anyone to be in. And you will have to do certain things to make sure you survive it. But most of your mental capacity is going towards the, what happens after this, right? Every disruption creates some opportunity, right? And unless you have the mental capacity to think about that opportunity, you can't do anything about it. And by the time you realize it's there, if you haven't already planned for it, then you can't do anything about it. Right. And so that's what, you know, we're thinking about as an organization is, you know, what are our clients going to demand out of us because of a situation like this? So already we know operationally, you know, we can work from home. We're working from home. We doing it successfully. So this will be a new normal forever. Okay. People will work from home. That's never going to change. Right. Why would anyone come into an office unless there's a social aspect to it? Right. And unless you're coming to interact with other people, then don't come in. Right. And if you're coming in to interact with people, do you need to come into an office to do that? Could you do it over brunch or meet at a beach resort for a weekend? Like there's different ways, right? You can separate these things that you club together as necessary. And from the market perspective, I see the same thing with our clients, right? There are certain clients who are, you know, you know, the day-to-day activity for most people is highly disrupted. So what they're doing is saying, okay, let's get around to all these strategic projects and initiatives that we've been thinking about, but putting them on the shelf and never getting around to. Right? And this is an opportunity to lay the groundwork for that, to then prepare us for the next, you know, five, seven, 10 years. And, you know, in 2015, we actually ourselves paused sales for about four months because we had grown so much, you know, over the previous few years that we kind of had to pause and reinvest in ourselves and our infrastructure and our staff to be able to support the next stage of growth. Right. And this is now five years later, it's a almost a natural timing for us to be able to slow down the growth of the business, to be able to invest in it. And I think most people have a hard time putting, hitting the brakes themselves to be able to do that, even though it's the right thing to do for the long-term health of a business. So I see a lot of our clients who I know are going to be discussed on the long-term really being very busy planning for the future. I think of those of us who lived through the great recession and this next time there's a recession, we're going to be like, what recession, recession, you know? Just- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unless it's, it's a, bigger. It's, it's the same song and dance, just different actors is what I say. Right? 
So. Yeah, and you know, Avi, we had a conversation because of our board check-ins that where you made a comment that really stuck to me, which is, you know, companies will come and go, but people will always be there, and yeah. they're gonna, you know, relationships matter during this time. Definitely, for sure. So I want to turn to you, and I know you are in New York City, and you have not left your apartment building in a very long time. And I'm sure that that is a disruption to your normal traveling all around routine, taking, you know, 6 a.m. flights here and there. What does your morning routine look like? And maybe just share with us the modifications that might have occurred during this period. Yeah. So, you know, before this all happened, I was trying to be really good about going to bed promptly at 10 p.m. So I could wake up at six and go to the gym and have my oatmeal and coffee and read the news before my wife and son would wake up and then spend an hour with them before I headed off to the office. So it was very, you know, regimented. Obviously, with this, uh, things have changed. I don't have a commute anymore. So, uh, you know, I don't have that time in the morning you got to worry about and don't have to get suited up every day. And so usually my days start when they have to. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not, you know, the gym is quarantined. So I'll usually wake up around eight in the morning, um, have my coffee and, uh, you know, get on a call with India almost right away with some of my colleagues there to kind of go over some of the tasks and to do's, uh, there. And then by 9am calls and meeting starts. And then when I have a break sometime, whenever that might be at 10 or 12, right. Like today I had breakfast at 12.45 in the afternoon. And, and so, you know, the, it's interesting, the dynamics, because the breaks happen in different ways. So, and I think for a lot of people probably working from home, they, they realize that maybe initially there's some challenges about being disciplined and not getting distracted. But for a lot of people who are, whose nature of work is calls and meetings, they end up scheduling back to back to back and they don't budget for the little bits of downtime that you might naturally have in an office setting. So it, you know, it, making sure that you, have that break is important. And obviously it's not going to be in the same way you would do in an office. Instead here, I'll go pick up my son or change a diaper. He, you know, I have an eight month old at home. So, you know, this has actually been very fortuitous for me. Like I really haven't had a problem being locked in because I love that I've been able to spend time at home. And I thought I would as soon as he was born and be more balanced with my work lifestyle, but it really didn't work out that way for the first six months. So the last two months have been really great. Yeah. A lot of hardworking, heavily traveled, execs are saying the same thing. My favorite mm -hmm. thing about working from home is number one, I don't have to wear any shoes. And number two, I can take a nap pretty much whenever I have a break in my schedule. That's just like gold. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, one thing I was uh, talking with some friends about is like after this, no one will ever ask what a stay at home mom does ever again. Right. And, and, um, and in, you know, Mother's Day is coming up and, you know, certainly have even more of an appreciation than I thought I could have had just being a witness to the amount of work that my, my wife puts in. And, um, you know, I, I saw something from a quote from the Golden Girls show, you know, being a mother isn't easy. If it was, fathers would do it. <laughs> so. That's very funny. So before we let you go, I'm just really curious. I actually don't know the answer to this. Um, where you want Traces to go and what mark you think that you as a leader will leave on the world? Yeah. So, you know, it's a question that gets asked quite often by a lot of folks to me. And, 
you know, having most of my clients be private equity firms, they only make investments with an exit strategy in mind. Right? So they presume everyone must have some exit strategy. Are you going to sell it now or it's five years and 10 years? Or um, And it goes back to my initial point about what my source of motivation is. Right? It's very, very long-term focus. And it's about being a contributing member of society. And the definition of my society, I think, is necessarily larger than most people having a company that has three offices in different states, cities in India, Right, having a client base that's globally distributed, right? Living in New York City, having a young son, having you know nieces and nephews, kind of all across the country, and so that still is what my larger motivating factor is. And and what I do with my organization is is aligning interests. Right? And I think everyone acts in their sole self-interest, whether it's myself or my analyst, right? And within organizations, about how do you align the interests of the organization and the individual, right? I have the luxury of it being you know, my organization with my co-founder that we can align the interests of the organization with our personal interests. So we will continue building the business for the sake of our stakeholders, which again, are our employees, are our clients and are our community. Right? You know, I could be very happy if it was just about financing, Hey, let's not grow anymore. It's more than my family ever had. Right. And be fine there, but that wouldn't serve my employees' interests, right? Talented people want to grow. For talented people to grow, the organization has to grow. For the organization to, has to grow, we have to have very happy clients that have to grow with us, right? And so we're constantly thinking about how to add value, right? And I don't see myself, you know, not being busy or not having a use case for quite a while, right? If one day I wake up and I'm not necessary, then I'll put myself out to pasture, right? And in our organization, we have a very strict move up or move out kind of philosophy because if you're not moving up, you're bottlenecking the guys below you. And that applies to myself and my co-founding partner as well, right? And so I never worry about what I might personally do next professionally. I just worry about how do I not do what I'm doing? How do I train someone else to do it? Or how do I automate it? But every time I've stopped doing what I'm doing, like two other things have popped up that I got to now do. So <laughs> that always seems to happen. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Me, me too, man. Not, uh, not interested in retiring. I mean, that's just like, once you accumulate the knowledge, it's like, you got to put it to work. <laughs> yeah. So I have this, uh, romanticized idea that my, you know, I'll live on a ranch in Montana and all the land to the rise in every direction and just not do anything. Um, but I think it's romantic cause I never know what that's like. So <laughs> Well, you could have that and work from home. Yeah. I tell people sometimes jokingly that my motivation is to be lazy. I work really, really hard. So one day I don't have to, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. There was a story I heard when I was an investment banking analyst about the banker and the fisherman. And this banker goes to Mexico and is on the beach and sees this man playing a guitar next to a boat and asks him, hey, is this your boat? And he's like, yes. And he said, you know, would you mind taking me out fishing? And he's like, sure. That's what I do. That's my living. I take people out fishing. So he takes him out fishing and he comes back and says, you know, so what do you do all day? And I said, you know, I play my guitar, I play with my kids, have dinner with my family, dance with my wife. I take people fishing. It's like, oh, so why don't you get some more boats? And he's like, well, how would I manage them? It's like, well, you hire some people to manage them. And he's like, but why would I do that? So then you could market and you can get more customers. Then how do I manage it? You get more boats and more uh, captains. And it's like, okay, but then what? Then you can IPO it and then you can fire. And he's like, then what would you do? Well, then you can play your guitar and play with your children and have dinner with your family and dance with your wife. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Incredible. Well, with that, Abby, it's been really great to speak to you today and have this conversation about business working for more than just shareholders. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'll never forget the moment that you taught me to use my computer without the mouse about 
15 years ago or something like that in uh, in Merrill Lynch. And I'm, I'm grateful that we also get to work together at Beyond Capital. And thanks again for being on the show. My pleasure. Yeah, it's been Thank really you. great. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.